This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here is my thoroughly open-sourced co-host, Yon. Um, hi, Dave. I'm hoping my source code isn't uh, opened on, on GitHub somewhere, just for the simple reason that DNA takes up an awful lot of space. Bad idea. Yeah, I'm afraid we've, we've published all of your DNA details on the internet. People are cloning you left, right, and center. The world will be full of yawns before we know it. Imitation is the best form of flattery, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh. And don't deflect here, because this, this episode I really like, because you're finally going to admit that I was right all along, and Gentoo is the way to go. Oh, God. Joe, I was actually <laughs> think I was thinking that this is basically corporate Gentoo when, uh, when I was coming up the stairs to my, to my office earlier on. Um, yeah, it, you're exactly right. And it's a terrible, terrible thing that we're about to go through. Anyway, that's, uh, that's jumping the, uh, the cart before the horse a little bit. Let's get into the topic of the day, which is, um, open source at Google. Um, the, this isn't so much talking about Google as a cloud provider. This is more talking about Google as a as a company, as a consumer of open source. But obviously, all of these topics are very much uh, interlinked. So we're going to start off with like a few basic concepts. And uh, there are a few um, prompts that we've kind of pulled together, various articles that are kind of aligning to this that you can kind of either, you know, do a little bit of further digging yourself, but uh, uh, if you're interested, but you know, the first piece that we want to talk about here is really Google doesn't consume open source software uh, in the same way that most other organizations uh, do. Um, most other organizations, a traditional you know enterprise organization, you know they will choose a Linux distribution and they will you know either maybe they're working with a vendor. Maybe they're just using an open source distribution. They will, you know, download the binaries, install them, deploy them in cloud images, you know, all those kind of good things. And they'll be doing the same with probably multiple open source projects that they have running within their organization. Um, this is not the approach that uh, multiple organizations like Google take. Um, they, the kind of, one of the key concepts around the the Google approach is this idea that they want absolute control over the code that is running within their enterprise. And by absolute, I mean total and absolute, by actually making sure that they download only source code and everything that they run, they build themselves. So as uh, as Jon was joking at the start here, this is effectively the Gen two of uh, the uh, the Fang world. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it it's makes... so very alien to like the enterprise world. Yeah, that's make me wonder because in Gen two, you actually bootstrap the system itself. You actually compile the compiler to compile the rest of the stuff. Do they go that far? Probably. I mean. They must. They must do. Like they. They must actually start. They, you know, the the first. I can imagine the first sort of uh, example was probably someone that did Linux from scratch. The, the Linux from scratch kind of uh, how to, 
um, that I fondly remember from back in the day. Um, yeah, it, but the the core sort of concept behind all of this is something called a monorepo. Um, like the monorepo, you can actually, um, you know, just look it up on Wikipedia. There's actually a pretty good definition of, of monorepo. But you can basically think of it as a huge GitHub repository where all of the code for all of the projects that uh, any given organization is looking to run, like all of the code is in that single repo and everything is built from there. And this is an approach used by Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Uber and Airbnb and Twitter and I'm sure many, many other organizations of that, you know, size, scale uh, and nature. Um, yeah, I think a keyword there is, is scale because this is not something that everybody should be doing. I mean, there's a reason that I'm not using Gentoo on our production server anymore. It's just an awful lot of work and you need to have dedicated teams of people, and I say teams, plural, to actually be able to maintain that in a way that is better than going multi-repo. Because if yep. you take up a monorepo approach, you're taking a hell of a lot of responsibility for it as well. And that's the question I've got for this episode, actually. Are you actually avoiding a lot of pitfalls, problems, hacks, whatever, doing a monorepo? Because you're still downloading all the source code from that project. So if somebody submits a Bitcoin miner, he's going to submit that Bitcoin miner as source code. If you just download the source code, add it to your monorepo to do your own compiling, you haven't solved anything at all. You actually have to really audit and alter all of that uh, software you download as well. It's not enough to just say, I'm compiling my own, so now I am safer, better, whatever adjective you want to use there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, it's not a... There, there are no no silver bullets, and this is no exception. Like This is not a, oh, okay, that sounds cool, we'll just go monorepo and everything will be fine. Um, there's actually a huge amount of time and effort that then needs to be poured back into that sort of uh, side of things to make the investment you're putting into a monorepo actually worthwhile. Yeah. And there's actually a downside as well, I think, because you mentioned earlier that uh, in commercial entities, they'll just choose a distro, install the distro and run with that. Typically, they will use a distro that has a support contract with potential indemnification clauses and stuff like that to make sure that if something goes wrong and it can be pointed back to something in the source code of that kernel or other product, they actually have a legal protection from claims and whatever. The moment you go starting, the moment you start doing the monorepo thing, all that goes out the window as well. So apart from having enough people to do it, you need to have good people that do it so you actually can be certain, kind of certain that you won't be hitting any legal issues in the in, in the long run. Yeah, it's I mean, this decision. is definitely this is definitely something that you need to be very self sufficient with. You need to be very comfortable with your your and your team's abilities to self support all of this because I don't know of many vendors that will support something recompiled by yourself, right? There are one or two exclusions to that that I'm aware of as special deals that various organizations have done with open source vendors over the years that I've worked with, but they're very, very few and far between, and they're very, very controlled and specific. 
so yeah it's uh it's definitely not a um it's definitely not a, a very easily um trodden path so if the if if we've we've talked a lot about the negatives of this um you know the what what are the advantages i think some of the advantages that organizations see from this yes one is the 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 purity of control that they have over the code that is running in their environments um another is this concept of a a true single version like if everything is built mm -hmm. from the mono repo that they have uh, then there can only be one version of any particular piece of software that's that's running at any given time sort of i mean obviously you upgrade things and you roll off old versions and roll on new versions but typically you know you're only you're only really sort of primarily supporting a single version of something at any given time because of that there's also this idea around having uh, clarity of what dependencies you have you know if you've got the dependencies are being pulled out of this mono, or built from this mono repo that again you have a very good understanding of of what your overall um, footprint is for dependencies but the okay. I'm sort of I'm a little bit more on the fence with this one because I can definitely see like there are a number of projects that have dependencies on for example different versions of Python is a is a favorite and so like you you yeah maybe you do get clarity over that but it still doesn't mean that you have a single dependency for everything for example it's not it's not that simplistic well, i guess you could say it's an early warning system because if you do your own builds of everything your build will fail if there's any inconsistency double versioning whatever while if you're just pulling in binaries maybe you'll only come up at a later stage in the development in the whatever tool you're doing with the thing so I guess there's yeah. an advantage on that point. Yeah. And, you know, the another ad, sort of update often quote, uh, another sort of advantage often quoted is this kind of ease of updates. The The fact is that if if the code is updated and, and the, the services are all built from that, then that's done. Like you don't need to download multiple different things. It's, it's all coming from one true blessed source. Yeah, is it though? Because it's coming from through blessed source once you've downloaded everything in your mono repo. But the moment that one of your dependent sub projects does an update or starts using a different version, let's say one of your projects moves from Python 2 to Python 3, now you have to move to Python 3. The fact that I downloaded this problem <laughs> into my own mono repo doesn't avoid the fact that I'll have to deal with it and start. Um, correlating, updating all the other projects as well to make sure they have a running project again. So does it really yeah. help there? I mean, I think it does because exactly as you were saying earlier, it's the early warning system, isn't okay. it? It's the, like when the build breaks, it's like, oh, oh, that, that, <laughs> that version increment of this particular project broke the build for these things. Better get that fixed. Better work out what needs to be done to get that fixed. And like, we'll... We'll go into a little bit of that as we kind of progress through the uh, through the story here. So the next part of this story is actually how Google themselves handle um, you know patching and dealing with licenses. And for this, like, there's a pretty interesting public um, doc on 
opensource.google, which covers Google's use of, of open source uh, software and how they patch it. And we're not going to go into a huge amount of detail here, but it, it is something pretty interesting. Like we talked about the, uh, the fact that this gives you, you know, the, the perfect level of control over code that you have within your repo. And um, what you can see from this is the uh, stuff that does not require review is, um, you know, things that are, for example, Apache 2 licensed. Like there's a whole list of licenses that are, you know, fine for uh, you to patch or whatever. But it also means that you need to have, make sure that um, a, a, a CLA or contributor license agreement is approved as well. And that the project isn't on the uh, list of projects that require SVP approval. Um, so what sounds initially very simple, oh, as long as it's Apache 2 license, but then there's a whole load of other caveats to add on to this. And a few things that are particularly uh, notable here is that there's a lot of stuff that has been essentially redacted from this document. I'm assuming to reduce backlash. I'm sure all of these links are, or all of this information is available internally at Google, but you know you can't get a list of projects that require SVP approval. You can't get a list of approved um, uh, CLAs, for example, or approved projects. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting. You you know you can't get a list of approved AGPL projects, for example. And in fact, the AGPL as a whole is is one of the uh, one of the patches that are forbidden uh, typically in the Google's own kind of mono repo. So there's there's a list of uh, sort of there's an interesting set of stuff here that will give you an insight into like this is not all um this is not all simple easy fluffy or just you know pour pour all your code in for anything that you're interested in it'll be fine um there are very real i don't know if dangers is the right word but issues that can arise from introducing differently licensed code into uh, a, a mono repo that can then be potentially unknowingly replicated across your organization and you know if you happen to be a service provider for example and you know you pull in let's say sspl um, code into your mono repo and it ends up being used all over your service that you provide that could land your organization into particularly uh, interesting um, legal situations and again like neither of us are lawyers uh, definitely neither of us are uh, licensed lawyers uh, so definitely take your own advice here but um, it's not a it's not a simple kind of situation. The technology is simple. The legals behind it are definitely not. Yeah, but this also 
two things here. I mean, uh, on the one hand, you're talking about viral licensing problems where introducing a certain project would uh, enforce a license on top of your project, which you might not be happy with. And that's the should we use this project, yes or no question, which is a perfectly fine question. But the patching document makes me think this is more about what patches can we give back to those projects? Because the mm -hmm. idea about a CLA, the Contributor License Agreement, we talked about this in the past, it has pros and cons on both sides. On the one hand, it protects the project from potential litigations afterwards because, hey, you gave us this patch, we're allowed to use it now, thank you. And on the other hand, it can also protect the uh, committer of the patch to, yep. if his patch for some reason starts a nuclear meltdown in the nuclear central, then, hey, sorry, it, it's their project, it's not, it's not mine. <laughs> Um, yep. So basically, in this case, the Googlers can still use the projects uh, unless they, if they're fairly uh, soft, fairly uh, licensed, they can still use them. They just can't push the patches they write, the bugs they fix, back to those originating projects, which is uh, the reason why when you approach this uh, topic uh, as a potential episode for us, I was a bit negative on the whole idea because it does feel a bit like Google is keeping stuff inside and not contributing those things back to the outside. Now, as you said, they probably put this together, this whole uh, policy document, because there are dangers and a company of the size of Google, if there's any danger out there in the US, they will get sued. That's just, <laughs> that's just how it works over there. So they need to protect themselves. So I can see why they're doing it. But it does, as the, yeah, the title of the episode is, open source at Google, it does give them a very particular way of not just consuming, but contributing back to the open source community. And uh, to be honest, at first, as I said, at first I was negative about the idea of what they're doing the, to keep it to themselves. But thinking about it, how else could they protect themselves from the <sighs> oversellers litigators? Let's call it that. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't, I don't want to go into it too deep because I'm definitely not a a licensing lawyer at all whatsoever. You read the internet, we're all our lawyers today. But the, you you can't, you know, with many of these licenses, you can't make changes to the code without having, you are literally forced to release those changes back to the organization. You can't just hold on to them for yourselves. Anyway, it, it's, it's a, I don't want to get into that because it can disappear down. <laughs> I would a, disagree, down but an entire, yeah, down an entire rabbit hole. But so the next kind of angle I want to talk about this a little bit is okay. So you can take all of these ideas and maybe you can build your own monorepo, and and you're in a you know you've got a good understanding of the code that you're bringing in and how it's licensed and how that affects you and it all is wonderful. But what if a particular project that you rely on for a core part of your infrastructure um, is changed in a way that honestly just messes you up? <laughs> it's sort of it's changed in a way like maybe there's a major API revision and you rely on certain APIs or something else happens. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of the the next article in this where. Google, back in early February 2021, actually proposed um, a set of rules for uh, developers working on what they called critical projects. And there were lots of things in this article that, that really, 
really do trigger me. Um, one is the fact that this is Google talking about uh, rules that they, they want to impose on open source projects because they're important to Google, basically. I mean, obviously they're branding this in the, it's for the good of all <laughs> mankind. But that's basically what it comes down to. And it really, it triggers me because like, there's nothing wrong with, in my mind, what they're suggesting, which is that um, if a project is really important, then the people working on that project should be cautious of making large uh, kind of sweeping changes to uh, to their code, that people contributing to that should have um, you know, some level of authentication. They are who they say they are. And this is um, committers, not just contributors. Mm. Um, so that you can make sure that people aren't spuriously throwing code in anonymously and all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, the build process can be trusted and all these kind of good things. And there's there's nothing in my mind, wrong with any of the things that are being proposed. But the way to make these kind of changes happen within an open source community, and I use that word very deliberately, is to get involved and participate and be an active, productive member of a community. Like if a project is critically important to your organization or your business or your livelihood, then you should be involved in that. You should pour resources into that and participate. If you're just consuming open source, then best of luck to you. You know, that that I I really struggle with especially large, very well-off organizations that um, you know, are talking about rules that should be import, in, imposed on critical projects if they aren't putting their money where their mouth is. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's all about open source. Be part of the community and then your voice will be heard. If you're just consuming the thing, well, take what is so generously offered and be happy that they actually offer it. Uh, that being said, for the particular example of Google, um, they're one of the big tech companies out there. They definitely have the reputation of being open source minded. They have a reputation mm -hmm. of committing generously back to open source. I don't. I do think that that reputation is well deserved. There are definitely some big players out there that don't have the reputation, and well deservedly so as well. So are you? I'm kind of figuring, trying to figure out what you're trying to say here. That if, are you claiming that Google isn't doing enough, or are you just making it a more broader statement that if somebody else will try to do the same thing Google is doing, don't think it just impose your rules if you're only consuming the thing. So I guess what I'm saying is is a bit of both. So there is actually uh, you know a pretty concrete example of this that again came up in the news towards the end of February where. Google were talking about the fact that they were finding bugs faster than they can fix them and had therefore sponsored two full-time developers to improve Linux security. And, uh, you know, while this in itself is obviously laudable and a, and a great step in the right direction, um, it, it, it's, it's not even scratching the surface. It's barely breathing on the surface of 
um, you know, the, the projects that Google, you know, consumes as an organization. So yes, it's great that they've got, you know, someone dedicated to, um, C Python. Well, you know, that, that's a, that was that's someone last Sorry. year. Um, this is someone dedicated around, um, you know, the Linux kernel mm. and, and someone else around the, um, LVM, LLVM clan compilers and improving compiler warnings. So obviously that's great, but Google consumes thousands of open source projects, um, maybe even tens of thousands. I have no idea, but it's a lot. And so, you know, this combination of on the one hand saying, oh, we we think that uh, all opens all critical open source projects, and again, you can you can argue as to what a critical open source project is, um, should follow rules that we think are are important. Uh, I just it's just not the way that open source works. It's not the way that open source communities work. If you, I think the rules are good. I think the or the, I, I don't think they're rules. I think they're guidelines. You can't enforce them. It's an open source community. So if you want to inspire organizations to you know start adopting these kind of guidelines then you don't need to put two people in and make a great fanfare and blog post and pr announcement and whatever around it you need to put thousands of people even you know i don't know what sort of number would actually make sense as as being more than a drop in the ocean but it definitely needs to be in the region of thousands of people into open source projects in order to, you know, help them achieve those kind of guidelines that they're talking about. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's a bit of bit of both, really. Yeah, I wouldn't go for the number of people, but more of the number of commits of meaningful commits to make yourself a uh, to give yourself a reputation in the community so that you actually have a voice that's being listened to and being heard to that's respected that's basically how it works um and i I guess there's a thing to be said that if you are using an open source project and it is critical meaning that if it goes away you die then it only makes sense that you would actually have serious commitment of resources to that project because hey you that's how you make your money so that's why you have to Put your R&D budget, basically. That's how it works. You can't just depend on the other... You can just depend on the other people, but then accept the consequences if the project goes away, changes license, um, goes a different direction. Uh, Sometimes these projects get... how it works. Or gets bought up by a commercial entity. I mean, look at MySQL. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, uh, you know, this to me comes all the way way back round to where we started a little bit. Well, that was productive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which, which is around, yes, you absolutely can go and download all of these things and build all of these things yourselves. And, and, and like, there, are, there is no reason why you couldn't or shouldn't go and do that. No sort of uh, fundamental reason. But there is a reason why God, 99%, I would guess, of enterprises, if not higher percentage, you know, go with a vendor or multiple vendors for their approaches. And it's to help insulate themselves mm. from all of the things that we've just spent the last kind of pretty much half hour kind of talking through. You know, if you work with if you work with a vendor in this space, 
the idea is that they will partner with you and collaborate with you and understand your needs and requirements and they will be or they should be your voice into yes. that community and you know you, you're exchanging really you're exchanging money for influence into that open source yeah. project solution or service in put, put very simplistically yeah definitely if you go with a vendor that uh is saying they're doing open source stuff and they're open source minded, they should have a way of making your request for enhancements, desires, worries trickle through to the open source project. If they don't offer that, then you'd just as well offer the closed source project at that point because, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's the, the whole idea about how know how the the mono repo is handled like there's there's lots more kind of depth out there on that but i i think this has been a, a reasonable kind of outline of some of the pros and cons and some of the different approaches and perhaps some of the some of the philosophies behind it um so yeah hopefully hopefully people found that interesting yeah i mean the one caveat i would say is we've been talking about the massive mono repos i mean i can have a mono repo of one project if that's the only thing i'm using and that's easy to maintain yourself that's not a problem the monorepos we're talking about here is really the, the very big masses of little components in there and uh, I mean if it wasn't useful for our listeners it was useful for me because I finally got to understand what monorepo actually was well there you go <laughs> so with that I see Dave is looking at me for the outro which means I forgot I was doing the outro today so if there's nothing ever, anything else from you Dave nope I'm all monorepoed out then that's all the monorepo time you have for today. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit notification bells, do all the YouTube stuff. Make us happy, make us proud. You can go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and more information about the podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag. You can also still send your feedback by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. And with all that out of the way, until next time, my name is Gentu for the win, John. And my name is, I'll just stick with a vendor. Thanks, Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.